Happy Monday and Happy New Year, kitty cats. And as we head here into 2021, I want you guys to pause before we get into today's episode and really take a second to think long and hard about the life you want to live, about the beliefs that you hold. If you really believe that taxation is theft, are you going to keep putting up with it? Or are you going to take steps to stop paying so much in taxes, to reduce your tax burden as much as possible? If you really believe war is murder, are you going to continue to fund the war machine? And if the answer is no, I don't want to live like that. I want to start living closer to my principles. You have to consider the concept of becoming an expat, the idea of living outside this country, of finding ways to legally reduce your tax bill, of having an escape plan, having a plan B for when the shit hits the fan. And I don't know if you've been paying attention this last year, the shit has really been hitting the fan, my friends. You have to have an escape plan. You have to have a plan B to protect yourself, protect your assets, protect your family. And that's why I want to encourage you to check out the Expat Money Show hosted by my friend Mikkel Thorup. Each and every week, he brings you expert interviews with people who help you build another life, help you find a second passport, help you find a path to citizenship elsewhere, help you protect your wealth. You have got to check out the Expat Money Show. Find it wherever podcasts are found, Apple, Stitcher, Google, you know the deal, or just head right over to expatmoneyshow.com. All right, my guest today is making his second appearance here on Lions of Liberty. He's the chief economist and global strategist at Euro-Pacific Capital and the author of, author of many books on the economy from the Austrian perspective, including Crash Proof and The Real Crash, among many others. He's also the host of the Peter Schiff podcast. I'm very pleased to welcome back Peter Schiff. Peter, are you ready to roar? I am ready. Excellent, excellent. And, uh, you know, Peter, since the last time you were on the show, you picked up and moved to Puerto Rico. So I just want to talk about that first. What prompted that decision to move to Puerto Rico and, and how's it treating you? Well, I mean, obviously, uh, taxes were a big motivating factor in putting Puerto Rico on my radar. And I actually moved my asset management company, Europe Pacific Asset Management, from California to Puerto Rico in 2013. And at that time, I bought a condo here as well and started taking some vacations in Puerto Rico, though I still continued to live in Connecticut and operate a business in Puerto Rico. But over the next few years, I really began to enjoy my time in Puerto Rico and really appreciate everything that the island has to offer as far as lifestyle. And so that was even as compelling a motivation as the tax savings. And the tax savings are enormous. And that certainly helps with the economics of the move. And I still have my home in Connecticut. And so I still have all the costs associated with maintaining that property. But I also now have some properties in Puerto Rico. We've since bought a house uh, that we spend most of our time in, although I keep the condo because it's uh, very close and it's right on the beach, which I like. And uh, But obviously not paying the federal income tax you know, enables you to afford uh, a much a grander lifestyle because you're not splitting your income with the government. You're pretty much keeping almost all of your income. My federal tax or my my tax bracket on the income I earn through uh, working, through operating my various businesses, 
my tax bracket there is 4%. That's it. Uh, so I get to keep 96% of what I earn and 4% goes to the government of Puerto Rico. Uh, none of that goes to the U.S. federal government. And then to the extent that I invest my 96% of my income and I have some success as an investor and I have some capital gains, those capital gains are taxed at zero. So you just pay the 4% on the money once, and then no matter how much money you make on your investments, you don't pay any more taxes. So it's obviously a much better system than the one uh, the states are subjected to. I still pay some federal income tax on my interest and dividend income that is sourced outside of Puerto Rico. So to the extent that I own stocks, and I do own a lot of stocks that pay dividends, uh, you know, I do pay U.S. federal income tax on those dividends, but I don't pay any capital gains taxes if I sell those tax stocks with a profit. But um, yeah, it's a great, great um, uh, lifestyle. I would highly recommend it, especially if you're thinking about relocating now, if you're in one of the high tax states, uh, especially the states like New York and California that are thinking about imposing even higher taxes on the wealthy than the ones that they already impose. Um, you know, if you're thinking about moving to Florida or Texas, just take a look at Puerto Rico, because if you're going to make the move anyway, uh, you might as well get out of the federal tax and not just the state tax. And I think with COVID and all the people that are now working from home, it really opens up this opportunity to a much greater group of people uh, than before when people physically had to be in their office. So, you know, if you're living in New York because you had to go to the office every day and now you're able to do the same job, but you never actually have to show up and you're thinking, hey, I can move out of the city. I can move into the suburbs. Don't stop there. You might as well come all the way to Puerto Rico. And it's a great place to live. As I said, it's not just about saving on taxes. Uh, it is a fantastic lifestyle, especially for the kids. Uh, I think they get the best deal. So if you're worried about uprooting your children, don't, especially if you're in my community. I, mean, I can't speak for the entirety of um, of Puerto Rico, but certainly in the, the neighborhood I live, it's very, very great for kids and families and, uh, you know, adults as well. I'm sure you're more than familiar with uh, the Free State Project, encouraging libertarians to pick up and, and move to New Hampshire. But uh, listening to you talk about Puerto Rico, it makes me think maybe maybe we should go to a slightly warmer area of the U.S. and, and gather uh, if we're going to try to form a libertarian community. Because uh, now I'm out here in in Los Angeles, in California. So hearing you talk about this, I've certainly been exploring my options as well because it's just it's gone from unbearable uh, due to you know the political climate here. But now on top of that, I always used to tell myself, well, at least at least we live in a really cool city. Uh, great restaurants. I can see my friends all the time. But here I am, nine months into lockdown. Pretty much any reason to live here is essentially gone, and it's still one of the most expensive places you can possibly live. And California still. Not only that, California will. They're trying to institute laws, like you said, to follow you for like ten years if once you leave the state to keep trying yeah. to tax your income. Yeah, California is crazy. I would be very scared. I mean, I wouldn't even want to go to college there. I mean, I went to UC Berkeley, but I can imagine. At some point, California is saying, hey, if you earned your degree in California, we want a piece of everything you earn <laughs> using that degree, no matter uh, no matter where you uh, you happen to live. Look, th these guys are going to be grasping for straws because they're taxing away their tax base. But then they're going to try to find a way to rope them back into it by taxing them even after they've left. 
So just don't even go near that state. It's very dangerous. Uh, and, you know, who knows, you know, but clearly, though, the Federal Reserve is going to be doing a lot of uh, the heavy lifting when it comes to monetizing. I, I think they're going to be moving from monetizing treasury debt to monetizing state municipal debt. I mean, I discussed that on my podcast today at the Peter Schiff Show podcast. There's going to be a lot of pressure for the Fed to step up and, and, and basically enable every government to go deeper into debt. So a lot of it is just going to be financed through inflation. So that's going to be the heaviest tax. But that's where the zero capital gains tax really benefits you by being in Puerto Rico, because inflation creates phony capital gains. In fact, in real terms, you could sell an asset at a higher price than the one you paid, but still be worse off because the cost of living could go up faster than your asset, in which case you don't really have a gain. You, 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 maybe you, you get more dollars, but the dollars have less purchasing power than the ones you use to buy the asset. So there's going to be a lot of phony capital gains that could be subject to significant taxes. But in Puerto Rico, the tax rate is zero on capital gains. So that's a very important uh, benefit to have. How does it actually work for, for someone listening that's, that might actually be considering this? Because I've talked a lot about here uh, on this show about the possibility of, of becoming an expat. We've had a few episodes about that and people moving overseas to try to, you know, sort of lower their tax burden and that sort of thing. But, you know, a lot of people see that as kind of like too large a step and you know, moving out of the country entirely. Whereas the situation in Puerto Rico, you're not, you're not actually leaving the U.S. So there may, may be a little less complication on that front. So how does it actually work? Can you just show up in Puerto Rico and then uh, like the next day you suddenly have your tax burden lifted? Or is there a certain amount of time you have to spend there? before you're considered, you know, a, a resident for tax purposes. And then, I mean, are you essentially exempt from all federal income tax? Is that correct? Well, as I said, I still pay federal income taxes on the income that is not sourced to Puerto Rico. Right, right. But any income that I earn um, from working in Puerto Rico is exempt from U.S. federal income tax, including the Obamacare tax. And all capital gains are sourced to where you live. And so since I live in Puerto Rico, my capital gains are therefore Puerto Rican sourced and they're not subject to U.S. federal income tax or the, the Obamacare tax. But moving to Puerto Rico is no different than moving to any of the 50 states. You, there are no special requirements. Now, if you do want to qualify for lower local taxes, you do have to apply for these tax grants. I mean, you automatically get out of the federal tax just by basis of being here, right? So that's automatic. You move to Puerto Rico, you move out of the U.S. tax system, but now you're into the Puerto Rico tax system. And if you don't get a grant, you're going to pay, you know, a 33% Puerto Rican tax. So you need to apply for your, your acts. Your, now it's called Act 60, but you will get the grant. And so you'll get the benefit of the the lower taxes but it's easy to to make the move i don't feel like an expat you know i don't feel like i'm living in another country certainly in my community everybody speaks english everybody addresses everybody else in english but once i go outside the gates and it's a pretty big community so i rarely leave uh but yeah a lot of people uh speak spanish um but most of them also speak english uh, when you encounter the biggest problem is working with the government. A lot of the people that work for the government 
don't speak English or speak it very poorly or just don't want to speak it. And of course, any communication you get from the Puerto Rican government is only in Spanish. They don't even bother to have it in English. You know, when I'm in Connecticut and I get something from the government, there's a Spanish version in America. But in Puerto Rico, they send it all in Spanish. <laughs> the same thing with a lot of the banks. You get your information and the utilities. I have to go to a Google Translate and cut and paste <laughs> to see what they're sending me. Uh, so in that respect, it's, you know, it's, it, it's Spanish. But, yeah, you have to stay in Puerto Rico for a certain number of days. But that's the same requirement as if you move states. I mean, if you move from New York to Florida, you know, you got to be in Florida uh, at least 183 days to be a Floridian. And right. you have to be in, you know, your prior state less than 183 days. Otherwise, you're still considered a resident. But you also have to establish a closer connection. I mean, it's the same type of test uh, that you're going to have when you move states, because these high tax states do not like it when their higher income earners, you know, move. No, and they really so they're don't. always going to try to rope you back into their tax regime by trying to claim that you didn't actually move. And they're trying to build a case that you're still there, even though you're not. And so that's going to be the same thing when you move to Puerto Rico. So don't think that you could just pretend to be in Puerto Rico and, and, and you know, just have a P.O. box here or, you know, no, no, you got to actually move to Puerto Rico and live in Puerto Rico. But as I said, it's not like being in jail. I mean, that's what people told me originally when I first came down here and they say, ah, well, I mean, you got to be in Puerto Rico as if I was, you know, in a jail or something. I like being in Puerto Rico. <laughs> Doesn't sound like the worst place to be, even if it was a jail. Yeah. I mean, it's in addition to not paying taxes, I get to live in a fantastic place like Puerto Rico. I mean, if I had to move up to Alaska or someplace like that in order to not pay taxes, you know, maybe I'd have to reconsider it. I mean, not that I, you know, I mean, Alaska is a pretty place too, but I mean, I'm not a big fan of the cold weather. You know, <laughs> uh, I happen to like uh, a tropical paradise, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I'm kind of weird that way. Yeah, yeah, a real weirdo on that one. I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm kind of curious, though, how did how did the lockdowns and, and the whole situation with coronavirus affect Puerto Rico? Because I know but prior to now, I mean, I was already looking at moving out of California simply for, you know, tax and political reasons. But now I see so many people, including myself, that are looking to leave lockdown states, not even for purely economic reasons, but simply because they don't want to live in lockdown. They don't want to live in a place where they essentially can't do anything they used to do. So that's why a lot of people are looking at places like Florida and, and that sort of thing, places that haven't really locked down in the same way. So what's it been like in Puerto Rico? Yeah, no, we've got the lockdowns here. I mean, Puerto Rico is pretty liberal locally. So we have the lockdowns. In fact, initially, we were probably locked down harder than most. I mean, we had curfews and we had you know mandatory Sunday closures and odd and even days when you're allowed to even drive your car. Now, they've backed off on some of that. But, you know, we still have restrictions. The gyms are open, uh, but at limited capacity, you got to wear masks the beach or beaches are now partially open. You can you can swim and you can throw a ball around and jog, but you can't lie out a chaise lounge uh, with an umbrella. Uh, you know, uh, restaurants are open, but uh, they have to. Their last call is I think eight thirty. You know, you got to be out. You got. I think we have a nine o'clock curfew now. You got to be home. Right, well, the virus um, can't get you after nine, as, as we all know. <laughs> but I mean, look, some of look. I don't know how strictly i mean i see people in their golf carts at, out you know after nine o'clock so right. they don't exactly have the police you know swarming around locking people up who are caught out of their house after nine o'clock 
but, you know, I don't know what good it's done. I mean, certainly we don't have all the tourists coming to Puerto Rico. You know, we used to have a lot of cruise ships that would come every day and dump people off in old San Juan. And so they're not coming in. And, you know, I live here, you know, by a hotel and the hotel, you know, guests are way down. Uh, so there's not as many people at the hotel on the beaches as there were. But, you know, if you're going to be locked down somewhere, you might as well be locked down in a tropical paradise. I mean, in a way, the beach is, you know, more private now. I have it more, almost all to myself sometimes when I'm there. Yeah, things could be worse, but, it sounds like. But, you know, we don't, you know, there's not as many parties as there used to be and, 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 and you know, gatherings like that. But look, the golf courses, at least are back open. So you can play golf. There play people playing tennis. So uh, it, it, it's not it's not terrible. All right, Peter, as we speak today, uh, we are in, uh, I guess, what what we have to say is the, the last days of Donald Trump's presidency. I only hesitate because some people disagree that that's what's going to happen. But uh, the consensus seems to be that the Trump presidency is winding down. And you were very, very vocal critic of Donald Trump throughout his presidency. Uh, so if you could just take a kind of a snapshot of the Trump presidency from simply the economic perspective, from where the economy was four years ago to where it is now, because, I mean, many people might just say, look, the stock market's higher than ever. This was this thing was a success. <laughs> well, if you remember, we had a very strong stock market when Obama was president. And, you know, Trump ran a campaign that attacked that stock market bubble by basically saying, look, Wall Street is not Main Street. You know, forget about what's happening in the stock market. That's a bubble. It's going to pop. I'm going to fix Main Street. I'm going to go after our trade deficit. America has been losing on trade. We're going to win on trade. We have a huge budget deficit, national debt. We're going to pay off the debt. We're going to make America great again. We're going to drain the swamp, all this great stuff. And none of it happened. Instead, all Trump is doing is pointing to the stock market bubble, which is now bigger than the one he inherited and claiming a successful presidency based on the stock market. Meanwhile, the budget deficits that he's leaving to Biden are far greater than the ones he inherited from Obama. The trade deficits he's leaving to Biden are much bigger than the ones he inherited from Obama. In fact, the trade deficit with China has never been larger. So to the extent that we were losing on trade before Trump, we're winning big time, bigger than we're losing rather bigger than ever with Trump. And this is even before COVID. I mean, COVID just made the trade deficits worse, but they were already getting worse before COVID. The same thing with the budget deficit. All Donald Trump did was make government bigger. Uh, yes, we got some tax cuts, but we also got increases in government spending. So Trump made government a bigger burden on the economy than it was before. He just changed the way that burden is borne by the public. Instead of paying for government with income taxes, we're paying for it through inflation. The government is printing more money and taking the purchasing power. I mean, the dollar is just beginning to fall. We're about 2% away from a six-year low right now, but that means the dollar is worth less today than it was when Trump was elected. It will be worth a lot less uh, over the next few years, and that's when Americans are going to feel the burden of government because everything they need to buy is going to be a lot more expensive thanks to the inflation that was created to finance this big expansion of government under Trump. And not, not only did he make government bigger, but he helped make government more intrusive into our lives. And, and also he um, 
you know, is a big proponent now of protectionism and tariffs. And I think he really took the Republican Party in a very bad direction, you know, away from smaller government to bigger government. He's really not a conservative. He's a populist. And I know there are a lot of people who support Trump who believe they, 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 they're they advocates of the Constitution and liberty and individual government and sound money. But none of that uh, can be really attributed to Trump. I mean, that's not how he he governed. He was a big government guy. He wants big deficits and he wants cheap money to pay for it. He, when he ran for president, he criticized the Fed for being too loose and then as soon as he became president, he criticized the Fed for being too tight. In fact, he said that zero percent interest rates weren't low enough. He wanted negative interest rates. You know, he wanted, you know, more QE, not less. And of course, he's got it now. Uh, but all of this is a is a big loss for the American public. And I have to imagine you don't see much better prospects coming from a Joe Biden administration. I'm kind of curious, though, with with all of your criticism of Donald Trump and everything you've laid out here um, and, and looking at the election, was there some was there one side or the other that you were sort of rooting for as what, what might be a, a least bad scenario between Biden and Trump? Or is it either way? We're kind of effed. Well, I'll look, there, there was a lot less regulation, new regulations imposed while Trump was president. So the people that he appointed to run various government agencies were not, uh, you know, big enemies of the, uh, the free market. And they were not there to just try to increase the regulatory burden. I mean, where Trump has increased it, you know, in health care uh, and especially his his recent uh uh, I guess, uh, um, executive orders uh, related to drugs and trying to limit prices that drug companies can charge. So that represents a, a big uh, increase in government interference, which, of course, is going to backfire and result in Americans paying higher prices for drugs, not lower prices for drugs. Uh, he really did solidify Obamacare. I mean, Republicans had one chance to get rid of Obamacare. Instead, they made sure it will never go away. Because Donald Trump has basically accepted the left's uh, premise that insurance companies should not be able to discriminate against people who are already sick, people that have pre-existing conditions. So we've totally destroyed the idea that health care should be uh, 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 you know, provided by the free market. We've pretty much accepted socialized medicine because that's basically what happens if if insurance companies can't discriminate against people who are already sick, then you've destroyed the insurance industry because there's no reason to buy insurance uh, if uh, you could just wait till you get sick and then the insurance companies will basically pay for your health care. It's no longer insurance at that point. And, and so once that happens, the whole system unravels and the only thing you're left with is single payer uh, socialized medicine. And so I think Donald Trump has kind of solidified that that's, in fact, where we're going. So I thought it was ironic that he says, you know, America will never be a socialist nation. Yet, of course, he advocates socialized medicine without coming right out and, and, and admitting it. Yeah, I mean, once, but, you've, once you've accepted the idea that someone should always be covered, whether it's by the government or by government forcing insurances, insurance companies to cover them, you've essentially accepted the premise, the premise that the government should be should be taking care of this. And then you, you've totally lost the argument about whether, you know, universal health care altogether, because if you've accepted that premise, you may as well have universal health care. 
Well, but you've also logic. you've also destroyed the ability of the private sector to provide health insurance because insurance is based on the concept that healthy people will buy insurance that they never use. And that's what makes it possible for the insurance companies to pay for the people who get sick. It's like if you think about fire insurance, right? Everybody buys fire insurance, but most people's houses never burn down, but they pay the fire insurance anyway, because they know in case their house does burn down, it could be a big deal. So you pay this small premium, maybe it costs you you know, $1,000 a year to buy your fire insurance. But if your house burns down, the insurance company gives you maybe a half a million dollars to rebuild it. Well, where do they get that money? They get that money from all the people who bought insurance who never used it because their house never burned down. But why do people buy insurance that they're not going to need? Because if they wait till after their house burns down, (laughs) nobody will sell them a policy. Because the insurance company is only selling you a policy because they don't think your house is going to burn down. You're buying the policy just in case it does. Well, they're they're trying to turn that around in health insurance. For health insurance, the insurance company is betting that you don't get sick. And you're buying the insurance policy in case you do get sick. Well, why would the insurance company want to bet that you won't get sick if you're already sick when you're trying to buy the policy. They're just going to turn you down and they have to turn you down because the only reason that healthy people buy health insurance is because they know they can't buy it when they're sick. That's the only reason that you buy fire insurance before your house burns down because you know you can't buy it afterwards. So, But when the government comes in and destroys the whole concept of health insurance, well, then you can't have it anymore. So you've destroyed the market and now the government has to step in. But of course, the government is going to be far less efficient. Uh, you know, I, I, I pointed out on my podcast the other day because somebody had sent me a, uh, a bill, a hospital bill from 1942. And the person stayed in the hospital for a week. And the total bill itemized bill came to $70. Wow. So oh it God. was $10 a day. And of course, the person who paid that $10 about 70 a day, hours, $70 a minute now. Yeah. But the person didn't even use insurance. They probably just paid the money. But, you know, I adjusted it for inflation uh, to show how much more expensive it is today to go to the hospital than it was in 1942. On the same token, I compared the cost of a new car in 1942 to the cost of a new car today and adjusted for inflation. Automobiles are cheaper today than they were in 1942, but healthcare is much more expensive. And, you know, usually people say, well, the reason healthcare is more expensive is because it's better. Well, clearly the automobiles that we can buy today are much better than the automobiles in 1942. Sure. I mean, what's included in, in in a car today, I mean, they're so much better than they were in 1942, yet the price is lower because that's what the free market does. The free market increases quality while it lowers cost. The same thing would be true in healthcare if the government had gotten out of the way. It would be cheaper to stay in a hospital today adjusted for inflation than it was in 1942 if the government had stayed out of healthcare. Yes, we would have much better health care, just like we have much better cars. But the cost of that health care would be much lower, just like the cost of cars is lower. 
Peter, I want to take a look ahead at what we can expect from Joe Biden's administration and from uh, the economic team he's putting together. And it's kind of funny. I, the first article I, I found about uh, Joe Biden's uh, economic team was by Jennifer Rubin. And and as you get into this thing, the, you realize she is not discussing anything regarding policy between Trump's, uh, you know, Trump's picks, Trump's team and, and Biden's team, probably because the policies aren't going to be drastically different. I, I'm presuming her biggest uh, thing when, when she was d- discussing who's who Biden is bringing in is, oh, well, Trump had all white men on his economic team. And look, look, Joe Biden's got a woman, Janet Yellen. Joe, Joe Biden's got a woman of color. Joe Biden's got an African-American man. So that, that was the extent of Jen- Jennifer Rubin's analysis. I'm sure you can give us a little bit better analysis of, of what's going on here. Yeah, well, first of all, when Donald Trump was elected or after he was elected, there were a lot of people that were making these crazy forecasts again about how Trump was going to succeed in rebuilding the economy and draining the swamp. And at that time, I threw cold water on all of those forecasts. And my forecast was that the Trump era would just be one of bigger government, bigger deficits, bigger budget deficits, bigger trade deficits, and that Trump would leave his successor an economy in worse shape than the one that he inherited. And so I was completely accurate in my forecast. And, you know, for all uh, the hoopla during the Trump presidency for a while about the greatest economy in the history of the world, all of that was PR. Right? It was it was the same as when Donald Trump was selling Trump steaks and he said his steaks were the greatest steaks in the world. Uh, you know, whatever Donald Trump does is going to be the greatest. That's how he markets himself. But a lot of other Republicans jumped on that bandwagon because Trump did become a very popular figure within the Republican Party, because at least on the surface, he was against the establishment. He was against the deep state. But in reality, he was more of a double agent because he he worked to expand the power of government, not not to diminish it. And I think he's now left the Republican Party in a very, very weak position to act as the opposition to the Biden agenda which is going to be to grow government rather substantially and to pay for it with bigger deficits and more money printing because the Republicans didn't object to the bigger deficits uh, when Trump, uh, you know, policies produced them. They didn't object to larger deficits when they were cutting taxes on the rich. So how would they object to Uh, bigger deficits for all these social programs that are going to benefit the middle class and the poor. At least that's the Democratic rhetoric. So I think it's going to be difficult for the Republicans to really uh, have the type of roadblocks in front of Biden that they did successfully erect in front of Obama. I mean, you forget one of the biggest reasons that Obama didn't do even more damage was you had the Tea Party in 2010 and you had a Congress that was you know, trying to limit uh, deficit spending. I mean, they, they didn't put a stop to it, obviously, uh, but they maybe slowed it down a bit. But the Tea Party is dead, right? Donald Trump helped to bury it. And so I think that the increase that we're going to see in government spending under, under uh, Biden is going to be greater, even though the government is already in a worse financial position than it was under Obama. The deficits are going to be bigger. And I think it's interesting if I don't know, you know, Trump is going to be out of office in about a month. Right. And I mean, maybe even a little less. But it's very possible 
that when he leaves office, the national debt may have increased by $8 trillion (laughs) during the four years that he was president. And if you think about that, that's how much the debt increased under Obama's eight years. But Obama ran up more debt in eight years than all of the presidents that came before him combined. Wow. And Trump's going to do that in four. And Trump and Trump is going to one up them. Uh, and, um, and and that's you know, for the guy that's at least in some way paying some kind of lip service to, to, to shrinking government, even though it clearly didn't happen. Meanwhile, Biden is the quite the opposite of that. Biden does not even have to pay lip service to it. He doesn't even have a base to appeal to when it comes to that. No, no. I mean, you know, and now you've got the cover of modern monetary theory, basically, that, you know, no, there's nothing that we can't afford. As long as we could print money, we could buy it. That, you know, that nothing is out of out of reach, that we could have whatever we want. There is no limit, uh, you know, there's, you know, to to uh, to what government can provide. We don't have to worry about the debt. It's impossible for the debt to be too big because all we have to do is print money. And this is the mindset that is gaining popularity. And, uh, you know, that's going to help drive this agenda. Plus, you also now have the left wing of the Democratic Party, the AOC Bernie Sanders wing, which is far more popular than it was when Obama was president. So even though Biden is not you know, out on that limb, a lot of the people who are going to be in his ear are. And since more and more of his base is radical left, you know, obviously Biden or who, you know, somebody's going to want to get reelected. I don't know if it's going to be Biden or Kamala Harris or whoever, but clearly uh, if they don't want to challenge from the left in a primary, they're going to have to throw them some meat. And so we're going to get some part of the Green New Deal or some part of uh, Medicare for all. I think we are going to get a $15 an hour federal minimum wage, maybe some type of um, uh, universal basic income. And we've almost got that now with uh, the money, the bailout money from uh, COVID. I mean, they're already but, talking about a full, full, you know, four to eight week national lockdown. And then part of that is essentially universal income during that entire time. Well, that, because it's paid, right? right? You don't have to work and you get paid, uh, which is basically a paid vacation. Uh, they're also talking about forgiving student debt. And clearly, I mean, that's on the table. I mean, there's a lot of votes. A lot of people have student debt. In fact, there are people that are of retirement age that still have student debt. So when you're talking about forgiving student debt, uh, you know, that's hard to be against that because, uh, I mean, if you talk about a single issue to vote on, if you're struggling with student debt, who are you going to vote for? The guy that says he's going to eliminate your debt or the guy that says no? Uh, It's a very powerful way to buy votes. But people think that you could just forgive student debt and they don't see the negatives. I mean, apart from the moral hazard, because once you forgive student debt, you're going to have a lot more student debt. Students are going to be far more likely to run up debt if they know that it's going to get forgiven. And once colleges know that it, that that the, that their customers are going to be less resistant to going deeper into debt to pay tuition because they know the debt's going to be forgiven. Well, if you thought tuition was rising fast before, where do you see how much faster it goes up once the students know that they're not even going to have to pay back the money they borrow to pay it? So uh, tuition is going to go through the roof. And of course, 
where does the money come from to forgive student loans? It comes from the Fed. The Fed has to print the money to repay the banks that are now not getting the money from the students. So you have a huge increase in money supply. And even if there are no banks, even if the loans were directly made by the government, that still expands the money supply because the government has given money to students that the students are never going to repay. And now money that was going to be repaid to the government is now out there bidding up the price of goods and services. So any forgiveness of student loans is automatically inflation because what the, if 500 a billion of debt is forgiven, that's like 500 billion of new money just being printed and dropped out of helicopters. Uh, and so that, you know, that is going to have negative repercussions. Yes, the people whose loans are forgiven will benefit, but everybody else will suffer. Hey there, kitty cats. I need to take a quick little break to remind you that if you love coffee, and I need coffee. I need coffee to get through interviews at this point because, let's say, so I just passed 40. I need a little extra kick in my step. And I get that kick from our good friends at Lauren Zotti, Italy. These guys have some premium coffee blends at an amazing price. You want to check them out at laurenzotti.coffee. That's laurenzotti.coffee, not.com. And what I love about these guys is that they aren't just fine coffee connoisseurs. They are also not just entrepreneurs themselves, but they are out there helping other people start their own businesses. Uh, they help people procure equipment, financing, and everything else they need to start their own coffee shops. So please do check out our friends at Lauren Zotti, Italy. Don't forget to use discount code LIONS for 10% off your order. So so what is one to do in this economic environment? I mean, I know a lot of people, even people that understand, uh, you know, understand what's going on with the debt, with the Federal Reserve printing money that will still say, well, you may as well just keep buying the stock market because they're going to keep inflating this bubble. Um, but at some point it, it has to pop. So what does that pop actually actually look like? I mean, you've been calling to uh, for seeing the dollar crash for, for a number of years. Um, but again, a lot of people will say, well, yeah, maybe he'll be right eventually. Maybe he'll be right eventually. But for now, you're missing out on so much, uh, you know, so many potential gains by staying out of the stock market. So what's, what's say like a young person supposed to do looking at this, someone who's maybe just starting to save for the first time, just starting to think, how can I protect this little amount of wealth that I'm earning just starting out here with all of what's going on around me, with everything the Fed is doing, with all of the, the, the debt that's being created? How am I supposed to invest my money? Uh, can I put it into the stock market and just ride this wave forever? Or do I have to realize at some point there has to be an end game here? At some point, this has to pop. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I'm not missing out on anything right now. I mean, we're having a much better year even than the S&P 500. In fact, I mean, look at what happened this week. I mean, personally, one of my biggest stock positions that I own myself uh, was up 50% on the week. And this is a, a royalty company that is in uh, copper and nickel. And so obviously these metals are being affected by the money printing more so than the stock market. In fact, I owned a number of companies that were up 10, 20, 30% on the week. Uh, so there are big gains right now that far outstrip the gains in the U.S. stock market. And I think that's going to continue. Remember, when I tell people to avoid the U.S. stock market, I don't tell them to keep their money in cash. In fact, right. if the choice was between U.S. cash and U.S. stocks, I'd hold my nose and buy U.S. stocks. Because I think at the end of the day, the biggest losers are going to be the people who hold cash. And, and, and the worst thing you could do with your cash is buy bonds. 
So it's going to be the bondholders that suffer the most, not the stockholders. But I think that foreign stocks, emerging markets will dramatically outperform the U.S. stock market over the next five to 10 years. Uh, in fact, over the next one year. And, you know, the only way the U.S. or the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government could prevent the stock market from crashing, which it should do because it's so overvalued. But the only way to, to, to save the stock market is to sacrifice the dollar. And that is what they are doing. They're keeping printing money and keeping rates artificially low to prevent the air from coming out of these bubbles. They don't want stock prices to crash. They don't want real estate prices to crash. So instead, the dollar is going to crash. And so what happens is the real value of stocks and real estate come down, except you can't see that if you're just measuring it with dollars because the dollar actually ends up losing value faster than your stocks or your uh, or, 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 or your real estate. It's like, you know, if somebody is shrinking, but I'm, I'm shrinking the ruler faster than they're shrinking, if they keep measuring themselves with a shrinking ruler, it'll look like they're getting taller. <laughs> but but they're not. I'm just I'm just shrinking the ruler that they're using to measure their height. So if I keep shrinking the value of the dollar, it makes it look like your stock portfolio is growing. But if you then take your stock portfolio and measure it in gold, how many ounces of gold can I afford with the stock portfolio? That's where you'll see the falling value uh, of your stocks or your real estate or whatever else you happen to have. But, you know, I recommend gold as a uh, store of value, as an alternative to cash. I don't recommend it as an investment. I do recommend a lot of investments. There are a lot of companies. Now, right now, a lot of companies that are in the mining business that mine gold, mine silver, and you know the industrial metals. I think all these companies are going to produce phenomenal returns for the people who invest in them. But we're investing in, in businesses all around the world that I think will be good inflation hedges, but will also benefit from a major macroeconomic transition that I think the world is going to undergo because the U.S. has really been the epicenter of the global economy because we have been the issuer of the world's reserve currency, U.S. dollar. And this has given Americans a unique privilege of being able to just print money and use it to buy stuff that we didn't produce. So the reason that we could run these chronic trade deficits year after year was because the world would take our dollars and just hold on to them. It's like you know, we're, we're writing checks that nobody cashes. And if you had a checking account where you could write a check and you don't have to have any money in the bank and, and people would just take your checks and never cash them, you could live pretty good. You could buy whatever you want. Just write a check. Uh, but I think the world's going to start cashing those checks. And that's that's the problem, because, you know, the, the bank account is, you know, the checks are going to start bouncing. And, and so the dollar is going to collapse and that's going to turn the world upside down because now Americans can't live beyond their means anymore. Americans can only consume if they produce. Americans can only borrow if they save. And our dysfunctional economy is, is, is so screwed up now from all these years of having the, the benefit of being the issue of the reserve currency that we're no longer going to be able to function in a, in, in, in a different world where we have to pull our own weight. Uh, but I think other countries, things are going to change. I mean, if you think about it, if America has been living above its means, that's only possible because the rest of the world collectively has lived beneath its means. So the world has had to produce 
more than it consumes and, and, and save more than it borrows to, to make possible uh, the American standard of living. So when the world is no longer offering this subsidy to America, it can reclaim those resources for its own use. So I think as the American standard of living collapses, you're going to see standards of livings of other people, a lot of the emerging markets in particular, rise dramatically. So America's loss is somebody else's gain. And that has profound implications for the value of assets around the world, particularly investment assets. So I want to own the assets that are going to gain the value uh, that American assets are going to lose. And, that, and that's really what we're positioned for. And this is going to be a historic transformation uh, and reallocation of global wealth and global purchasing power away from the U.S. And you know the reason the U.S. became so wealthy, the reason Americans were able to consume as much as we did, is because America had a comparative advantage in freedom. We were the freest country. We had the lowest taxes. We had the least amount of regulation. And because of that, we were the most productive. Our factories produced the goods that everybody wanted to buy. Everything that was made that had value was made in America. We paid the highest wages in the world, yet our products were the lowest priced in the world because that's how efficient our free market economy was. We had huge trade surpluses. We were the world's wealthiest creditor nation, and we had real money. We were on a gold standard. Today, we have funny money. We're the world's biggest debtor nation. We have the biggest trade deficits, the biggest budget deficits. We have higher taxes than a lot of countries, more regulations than a lot of countries, we are a shadow of our former selves, and we no longer deserve the standard of living that most of us uh, enjoy. So reality is going to set in in a very, very big way. Uh, but, you know, for the Americans who want to escape that, uh, they need to act. They need to get out of their dollars. They need to divest and diversify and move assets internationally, which is what I've been doing personally for years, what I've been doing with my clients. The good news is there's still time. There's still time to sell overvalued U.S. stocks, overvalued U.S. dollars, and build a good diversified portfolio of non-dollar assets to escape that inflation tax and avoid that massive decline in uh, living standards that unfortunately most Americans are going to have to endure. Well, Peter, one thing, one more thing I got to ask you about, and I, th I think by far the biggest criticisms that you receive from libertarian circles is surrounding Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin specifically, maybe cryptocurrency in general. Uh, back when you were on this show in 2015, you were telling people, sell it now, sell it now while you can. That was when it was around $500. And now I think just today, uh, as of this recording, yeah. it just passed $24,000. So I'm just curious, have you changed your tune at all? I know some people gave you a hard time when you said you, you know, you misplaced a key and maybe maybe mis lost some bitcoins, which is which is always my fear as well because I lose everything. So I'm so afraid of losing keys and, and that sort of thing when it comes to cryptocurrency. But I'm curious if your your general outlook on Bitcoin, on cryptocurrency overall, has changed over the years, or do you still still see this as basically tulip mania, as people chasing things that really have no value that will eventually pop? No, I have not heard any arguments in favor of Bitcoin that have caused me to change the opinion that I had when I first heard about it. As far as its viability... Are, are you surprised as, that it did get this high, though? Well, look, obviously, if I thought it was going to get <laughs> this high, then clearly I would have you know, bought a bunch of it. Right. So yes, I mean, it does surprise me that it's at 24000 
dollars. And if it gets to a hundred thousand, that will surprise me too. But you know, all along the way, I never said it was impossible. You know, in fact, I remember you know when Bitcoin first got uh, to five thousand, I say, well, it could go to fifty thousand because fifty thousand makes as much sense as five because it's worthless. And so, if you're going to assign a five thousand dollar price to something that's intrinsically worthless, well, why not fifty thousand? I mean, it's just worth what people want to agree that it's worth because it doesn't have any objective value because you can't do anything with it. I mean, they try to say that that's the same for gold, but it's not. Because gold is a rare commodity that is extremely valuable. It's the most useful metal on the planet Earth. And there are lots of real world uses for gold. In fact, gold is used to make bitcoins. Gold is in all these chips that are mining bitcoin. So it's interesting that, you know, you need gold to make bitcoin, but you don't need bitcoin uh, to, to get gold. And of course, you know, once you've mined gold, if I have a gold coin, nothing is required to maintain that coin. I could just put that coin, uh, you know, in the shoebox, uh, you know, and, and it could be there for a hundred years. I mean, it, it doesn't require any additional expenditure of energy to keep that coin uh, there. But what that coin is doing is it is preserving the value of the gold. So in a hundred years, if somebody needs gold for a circuit or they want to make jewelry, they could take my coin and use it. It's the same as gold that they pull out of the earth that day. Gold does not use its properties. In fact, if I find gold that sunk in a ship 700 years ago, I can pull it out of the bottom of the ocean and it's just as good as the day the ship sank. I mean, nothing else about that ship is going to have any value. The, 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 the years of uh, the, you know, the, the decay the, would have destroyed it. But the gold is going to be in the same condition it was when, when the ship went down. And I could do whatever I want with it, the same as if it was mine. But Bitcoin... There, there's nothing you could do with Bitcoin today. So there's nothing you could do with it in 100 years or in 1,000 years. Uh, it, it, its value simply is what somebody is willing to pay for it. That is not the case for gold. And, you know, gold has to be physically mined. There's a cost to getting it. So if you need gold uh, and you want to make, you know, jewelry and you need the gold, well, you got to pay a mining company to, to get it out of the ground. Otherwise, you're not going to have it or you're going to have to convince somebody else to turn in their gold and melt down their jewelry so you can make a different piece. Uh, but, you know, is Bitcoin is only going to have value if somebody is willing to buy it. And why is somebody willing to buy it? Because they believe somebody else will be willing to buy it at an even higher price. So that is what's driving it. It's the thought that the next guy will pay more than you did. And so far, that's happened. I mean, now people are paying $24,000 a Bitcoin. And the person who's buying it for $24,000 thinks somebody will pay $25,000 or $50,000 or $100,000. But at some point, somebody pays the highest price. At some point, you know, the bubble peaks and the process starts to reverse. And then the fear sets in that the price is going to go down that if you sell it in the future, you're going to get less. And that's when there's a rush for the exits, because the minute people don't think the next guy is going to pay more, if they think the longer they hold, the less they're going to get, then everybody wants to run for the exits. And what are the reasons that Bitcoin has gone as high as it has is because so many people refuse to sell. So many people still believe 
that, you know, Bitcoin is going to go to a million and they don't want to be the fool who sells at 24,000. So you have all these people that are holding on to this fantasy that they're going to become millionaires or billionaires as long as they don't sell their Bitcoin. Of course, obviously, somebody is selling because otherwise the price would already be a million. So somebody is selling and taking advantage of other people's foolishness. But the vast majority of people are just holding on and hoping that they're going to get rich. But Bitcoin is not a medium of exchange. Uh, it is not legal tender. It is not money. So all of the people who have Bitcoin, if they want to actually benefit from their Bitcoin riches, if they want to buy a car, if they want to buy a house, if they want to travel, they got to sell. And so somebody has to be willing to buy in order for the people who currently own to turn that paper wealth that they have in Bitcoin into actual tangible consumer goods that they could buy because they can't they can't spend them. Um, so I, I think it's just a, a classic bubble. Um, yeah, I mean, would it have been profitable for me to have bought in, uh, you know, when I first heard about it, but you know, what is the odds? I mean, how do you stay in this thing and never sell? Right. I mean, you know, and the problem is if you know, it's a bubble and you know, it's going to collapse eventually, it's difficult to, to stick with it. You actually have to really believe in it to stay with it. And the people who really believe in it are the ones who are going to go down with the ship, right? They're not going to get out. It's the same thing we could say for the, uh, yeah, same thing we could say for the U S stock market or the U S dollar. I mean, it's, it's going to go as long as, you know, as long as people continue to believe in it, but at some point it has to stop. Well, the U S stock market I can argue that, you know, the U.S. stock market is overpriced. But at least there are companies behind it, actual assets. There, there is value to a operating business. See, the thing is, Bitcoin is not like a stock or real estate or a bond because stocks pay dividends, bonds pay interest, uh, real estate pays rent, right? So Bitcoin is not an asset in that respect in that it doesn't throw off any income. You know, people keep saying when I say, hey, the only way you make money on Bitcoin is if the price goes up and you they say that's the same with all assets. No, it's not. You you can collect income from those assets. Now, yes, there are there stocks that don't pay dividends. Yes, there are. But they still have earnings in theory. And those earnings are, 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 are adding to the value of the company because they're reinvested in uh, plant and equipment. They're growing the retained earnings and eventually you know, the stocks could have could pay dividends out of these accumulated earnings and the, the growth of the business that you're participating in. But Bitcoin is, you know, like a dollar or a euro in the in the sense that if you just take your dollar and put it under your mattress, you don't get a return on it. Right. So Bitcoin is like that, except it's not legal tender. You don't need Bitcoin to pay your income taxes at the end of the year. So it's just a non-income producing asset that only has value if somebody else wants to buy it from you because he thinks somebody else will buy it from him at a higher price. It's just, you know, it's the epitome of a pyramid is all, you know, a greater fool. Eventually it has to stop because, you know, as a as a as a medium of exchange, Bitcoin is no good. 
it's not used as a medium of exchange. It's very uh, inefficient and expensive to use as a medium of exchange. Uh, and the price is too volatile. I mean, nobody prices goods and services in Bitcoin. There's no Bitcoin bond market. There's no insurance products priced in Bitcoin. I mean, it, the whole thing is absurd. It's just an asset, uh, but it's not a store of value because inherently it has no value to store. So, you know, it's not money in any respect. It, it's not good as a unit of a media of exchange. It's not good as a store of value. Now, people get confused between store of value, let's say, hey, well, Bitcoin was 100, now it's 24,000. So it's stored all that value. No, the price of a Bitcoin has gone up because people are willing to pay a higher price, but that is not the same thing as a store of value. There isn't any value that is being stored. The price has just gone up, but the price can collapse at any minute. Nobody has any idea. I mean, could Bitcoin be 100,000 at the end of the year? Yes. Could it be 1,000? Yes. It could be either of those prices. It could be, you know, you nobody knows for sure. And eventually it's going to collapse. But, you know, if you want to take your chances and, and, and bet that the bubble gets bigger, as I said, I own plenty of stocks that did better than Bitcoin this week. And I don't think yeah, I don't know any stocks that have done as good as Bitcoin had I bought it 10 years ago. Sure. Uh, but, you know, I have stocks that have done better than Bitcoin this year. Um, has my entire portfolio done better than Bitcoin? No. But how many people have everything they own in Bitcoin? I mean, wouldn't that be kind of reckless if all of your net worth was in Bitcoin? That would be a little scary. <laughs> so, so maybe people have a portion of their net worth in Bitcoin. And, and so I may have done better than a lot of those people because I have, I have portions of my net worth that have done better than Bitcoin. Uh, but I have not beaten Bitcoin with my entire net worth because I have a diversified portfolio and I have a lot of conservative things in my portfolio because I, I don't want to watch my net worth collapse. But I think a lot of people who have made big oversized bets in Bitcoin are going to watch their entire net worth evaporate. You know, uh, and, 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 and at the end of the game, whenever that is, there's going to be a lot of sob stories. Uh, there's going to be huge losses. And I think there's going to be lots of litigation. I think a lot of people who made money in Bitcoin are going to end up being sued by the people who lost money in Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, no matter how much uh, how much logic I hear about Bitcoin, I mean, everything you say makes perfect sense. No matter what, I still hear the voice in the back of my head haunting me from the when I first started podcasting and Bitcoin was like $17. And I said, ah, eh, I, I don't feel like buying any of those. That seems silly. And now I'm just like, man, what if I just bought a couple of them then? You know, just a couple of them. But, well, uh, yeah. and then, but, but, but you would have had to have not sold them. Right. That's exactly. the thing. And, and I might have sold um, them at 500 saying, well, wow, I, I did great here. Yeah, yeah. So you have to really believe in, you know, it's, you know, in, 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 in everything. Uh, and a lot of people do. But, you know, when you start off by asking me about, hey, I get a lot of crap from the libertarians, because, yes, I mean, initially there were libertarians who kind of, um, you know, latched on to Bitcoin as a free market alternative right. to fiat currency. But the problem is a fiat digital currency is not that good an alternative. I mean, we already have an alternative, and that's gold, real money. I mean, gold uh, was what was around before fiat currencies, and it will be what's around after. The only reason that gold is not used as a medium of exchange today is government regulation. It is very easy. In fact, it's easier to do this with gold than it is with Bitcoin. It is very easy for 
private institutions, banks, or other depositories to hold gold and issue digital tokens that are claims to that gold, just like the old blacksmiths and the old banks issued paper money backed by their gold. It is very easy to do that now. And people can transact with gold instantaneously online. You can buy a cup of coffee with gold or you know, you could buy a car with gold and pay with an app on your cell phone. All very simple, very efficient. Uh, doesn't require anywhere, any of the energy that would be required to validate these transactions with Bitcoin. Um, and because gold is so stable, merchants could actually price their goods and services in gold. They can receive payment in gold. It would work spectacularly if the Bitcoin community was simply behind uh, returning to a gold standard and incorporating uh, the blockchain technology into gold, then that would be something that I would support. But of course, it's something that the governments are very much against. And the governments are trying to stop that uh, with the AML regulation and the KYC and all the stuff under the guise of you know shutting down the terrorists and the drug dealers. Uh, they want to make it harder for legitimate money to compete uh, with their fiat monopolies. But I do believe that at some point, if Bitcoin actually succeeds in becoming more popular, it, it will be a victim of its own success in that the governments will will crack down on it. Um, and, and so if it doesn't die of a self-inflicted wound, it will be murdered by government. Um, and I think at the end of the day, it's going to do a disservice because I think it's going to get people to think that, aha, you know, the government, we should have stuck with dollars and euros. We shouldn't have. The free market is bad because I got into Bitcoin and lost all this money because of the free market. And then the government is going to take advantage of the fact that so many people lost money in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And they're going to use that uh, to impose even more regulations on all sorts of things, probably even gold and silver. Well, yeah, they can, uh, because they can use that to say, you know, say, well, look, we have to protect people from these cryptocurrency scams because look what happened. People got wiped out. So now the government has to step in, ban them, control them or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. And then they end up with but then the regulation goes to gold and silver, too. Oh, we have to prevent people from getting ripped off with gold and silver, just like they got ripped off with Bitcoin. Uh, so we end up you, with that as an excuse to impose regulations, uh, you know, on 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 other alternatives. Right. Because Bitcoin is uh, marketed as an alternative to gold. It's digital gold. Well, if that was a scam, well, what about real gold? You know, maybe we should put some limitations on real gold, too, because, hey, we don't want people losing money in gold, just like they lost money in Bitcoin. Uh, so who knows? I, but, you know, I, I'm not against the concept of the free market coming up with an alternative. So as a libertarian, I certainly don't want the government to ban uh, Bitcoin or any of the cryptocurrencies. So I'm opposed to any of that regulation, even if it ends up being enacted, I am opposed to it. But what I am opposed to is fraud and deceit. And to the extent that people are being conned into buying Bitcoin, if they're being lied to, if uh, the trading is being manipulated, if you're having all these pump and dump schemes where people are saying one thing privately, but then doing the opposite, I mean, saying one thing publicly, but doing the opposite privately, I do think there is a lot of fraud going on uh, within the crypto community, not just Bitcoin, but all these other coins. So I think that there are laws that are being broken, uh, and I think there should be uh, some accountability there. Um, but that's not, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a libertarian. I'm not an anarchist. 
So I think theft is wrong and I think fraud is wrong. And to the extent that people are being defrauded, then I think that's wrong. But to the extent that people are and are victims of their own greed, I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, despite all sorts of pump and dump schemes and fraud, people have to take responsibility for what they do. And, you know, there is information out there. I mean, people have closed their eyes to reality when it comes to Bitcoin. And I think that ultimately, when people lose a lot of money, they need to look in the mirror because the person who's going to be most responsible for their losses is themselves. Well, Peter, uh, nobody can accuse you of being anything but consistent on, on this <laughs> and just about everything everything else you, you dish out in, in terms of uh, your position on the economy and everything. So uh, perhaps we'll check back in on the Bitcoin price in five years and, and, and <laughs> see where things are going then. But Peter, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. I really do appreciate your perspective. Always want to encourage people to check out the Peter Schiff podcast where you get the, these type of insights. Uh, well, I think you're doing a couple couple shows a week now, right? Yeah, shiftradio.com. Also on YouTube, you know, I just went over 400,000 subscribers last week. Goal, try to get to a million. So if you're not subscribing, not only subscribe, but tell your buddies and get them to subscribe. I want to get the word out, uh, get people to understand, especially, you know, during the Biden presidency. I mean, the policies are going to be so bad. And most of the people on the Republican side really are not going to have the credibility to criticize what the Democrats are doing because, you know, they'll look like hypocrites. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, you know, there's not that many voices that are going to really have credibility because I was consistently critical of what the Republicans were doing and what Trump was doing when they were growing government and growing the deficits and spending more and printing more. So I have the credibility without just looking like a partisan hack to now criticize Biden and uh, and, and, the, and the Democrats, because I was also critical of the Republicans when they did the same thing. Now, the Democrats are going to do it on a bigger scale. They're going to do it even worse. But if you weren't criticizing the, the Republican deficits, by what right can you now criticize the Democratic deficits? Well, with that said, Peter, I'm just curious, any chance you dip the, your toe in the water of running for office and trying to get more of a political platform again, as I know you did about a decade ago, but or are you going to continue to sort of uh, opine from, from, you know, while running your business, opine from the beach in Puerto Rico instead? Yeah, well, you know, I'm 57 and, you know, now you got people running for president, you know, that are going to be in their 80s. <laughs> Yeah, so, you're, you're a young man still. You, I mean, so these guys, I so. still have some time. So I don't see anything happening uh, in 2024. Uh, that's a little early. But who knows? I mean, one thing that I, I may do, because one thing I didn't like about my Senate race was the fundraising. And even though I funded a good portion of the campaign myself, uh, I still had to raise money, and I didn't really like the campaign finance laws. My father really was actually a Peter Schiff donor. Uh, he lives in Connecticut, so he, he was one of those back in uh, back in 2010. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I look, I mean, if I do it again, I'm just going to – I just want to self-fund the whole thing. I don't even want to deal with it. Um, and, you know, Donald Trump paid for a good chunk of his campaign, and he won. And And so – to the extent that my predictions come true uh, and I make the type of money that I think I'm going to make over the next, you know, five, five to ten years, uh, I'll have, you know, an extra billion to blow on a presidential run if I feel like doing that. I don't <laughs> exactly. even think it'll 
<laughs> so, uh, so we'll see. And, and I think if, if things get bad enough in the U.S., then the political climate might be ripe for a real change. I mean, the one thing that leaves me optimistic about the whole Trump era is that people do want legitimate change. I mean, there is a degree of patriotism out there. I mean, even if it's misplaced right now, people are talking about the Constitution and individual liberty, even though none of that has anything to do with with with, with anything that we've had under Trump. But I think there is a longing there, you know, for, you know, that those traditions, what really made America great and making America great again. It's just that Donald Trump didn't have uh, you know, the willingness to do it. He, he, he was more concerned about uh, being liked and being reelected. And, and so to the extent that there, you know, people really want to try to fight back against the forces of socialism, the forces that totally want to remake America into something completely alien to what the founding fathers envisioned. And if there's a real counter movement to that, you know, then leading that movement would be, you know, something that I could do. And um, I think if things get bad enough and enough of my predictions pan out, um, at least it's like, hey, look, you know, he warned us, he told us this was going to happen. And now it's all happened the way he said, and it's a complete disaster. And, you know, maybe you the Peter Schiff was right video all, all over again. Yeah. You know, maybe we could actually have you know, real capitalism again in America instead of, you know, looking for government solutions, because that my entire campaign would be about unshackling uh, the individual uh, from government. And just look, you know, there is no quick fix. There's nothing the government can do. All the problems have been created by government. And, and so government just has to get out of the way. We have to dismantle the, the welfare state, get rid of all these entitlements. We have to recreate the type of economy that existed prior to my grandparents coming here from Europe around the turn of the uh, the 18th century to 1900. And if we have the type of freedom that we had back then, we can build an even greater standard of living because we have better technology than we had 100, 200 years ago. If we could just marry 21st century technology with 19th century freedom, I mean, there's no telling what we could achieve in this country. Uh, so but we just have to create the framework for that to happen. But it can't happen with government. And, you know, it has to happen from the individual uh, in a free market. Well, that sounds like a hell of a political platform right there. So I'll take that as, as the door is, is very open. <laughs> I'd say, uh, Peter, thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. It's great talking to you again. And, uh, you know, th I know you're going to be out there uh, continuing to roar about this stuff in your own platforms, maybe even on a political platform eventually. So keep up the great yeah. work. Keep on roaring. All right. Take care. All right, kitty cats, I hope you enjoyed my interview with the returning Peter Schiff. I'm going to go ahead and post the link to the interview that I did with Peter Schiff several years ago, uh, where he really got into speaking about his father, Erwin Schiff, how he wrote against the income tax. Uh, he unfortunately did pass away uh, in the past couple of years. We didn't speak about that today, but uh, the first interview I did with him a couple of years ago focused heavily on that. It's really one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done, uh, along with this one as well. Uh, so I'm going to link to that in today's show notes. You can, of course, find that at the brand spanking new Lions of Liberty com. That website was paid for by our amazing patrons in the Lions of Liberty Pride who fully support this show. You can find out more about that over at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. We have all sorts of exclusive bonus 
content, Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, Drunken Howie Story, Brian's Do Nothing Man, a new episode just released recently. Uh, just a plethora of bonus content. We really go out of our way to make sure that our patrons get their money's worth. Uh, and of course, we have all sorts of different levels uh, with various perks. Uh, some levels you get free giveaways like t-shirts, like mugs. Uh, the highs you get higher in the tiers, you can uh, get to the Nittany level where you can become a producer, uh, get in the queue to be a producer of the show. You've been hearing a lot of those Nittany shows, Nittany sponsored showed shows over the last few months. Uh, just so many ways to support the show. There's a level for everybody, so I really want to encourage you to check out the Patreon. Join the Pride over at patreon.com slash lionsofliberty. And don't forget, or just for the newbies, you know, it's not just me here carrying the load on the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast, bringing you stellar interviews with leaders in the liberty movement with people like Peter Schiff. I've also got my compatriots in Liberty, my fellow Lions of Liberty, Brian McWilliams, every single Wednesday, slaps you right upside the head with his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land. And my friends, if you are a fan of John Odermatt, if you look forward to Felony Friday every single Friday, well, you might want to check your feeds just a little early this week. We are doing a little format. I should say we. I say we. It's really John is doing a little bit of a format change with that show. So I would just say check that feed on Thursday and maybe look out for something similar, a little different. I don't know. I don't know what you're going to see, but it's going to be there. So check that feed a little bit early on Thursday. You should be getting a new edition of not Felony Friday, but a show called Finding Freedom. And that's all I've got for this week, amigos. Don't forget, if you haven't had enough of me yet, you can always head over and subscribe to the Second Print Comics Podcast, where myself and Remzo Martinez look at the comic book characters, stories, and events that shaped our fanhood. You can find that on the Second Print Comics Podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button. Check out our comic talk once you're done with all this Liberty stuff. And until next week, my friends, live long and live free.